So this series is called Happily Ever After. It's the first week in a three-week series on marriage and relationships. I'm 30 years old. Don't let the hairline deceive you. That's simply a blessing from the Lord to make me appear older so that I'll be more credible as a pastor. But I'm 30, and part of the reason for the hairline is the fact that I have five kids, and the oldest is eight. So I have five kids, and we've been married for 10 years. But I want you to know this morning we're not here to hear my opinions and my thoughts on how to have a good marriage. I got issues like everybody else. Let me hear everybody say, I got issues too. Yeah, you do? All right, now we got that out of the way. That's good. We are here to study what God says about marriage in his word. So I want you to know right off the bat, you shouldn't listen to what I'm telling you today because I think I'm smart or I'm an expert on marriage. I'm not. We're gonna be studying the words of the one who is the ultimate expert on marriage, and that's the Lord, and we're gonna dig into his word and see what he has to say about that. We're gonna find out that I'm not the standard, you're not the standard, Jesus Christ is the standard. I know that some of you might have come here today praying that God would move deeply in your spouse, but I want you to know that this series is not for your spouse, this series is for you. This series is about what God wants to do in your life and in your marriage through you. So everybody say, this is about me. Oh man, no, you gotta say it like you mean it. Say, this is about me. All right, now we've got that out of the way. Now we're ready to get started. We posted this to our Facebook account earlier this week that in 2012, the Canadian government did what will be the last study on relationship statistics and metrics in Canada. And they found that 43% of marriages in Canada will end in divorce. 43%. So 43% of people who stand up in front of their friends and family and promise to love another person forever, 43% of those people will ultimately find that relationship unbearable and will sever it. 43%. And here's what's interesting about that statistic. It doesn't really change for Christians either. You'd think it would. You'd think we would have more committed marriages. You'd think all those things would make a difference. So why why is the statistic the same for Christians as it is for non-Christians in the area of divorce and marriage? This is your first fill-in on your outline. I think it's very simple. Christians are just as capable of ignoring God's instructions as non-Christians are. We're just as good at being stubborn and ignoring the counsel of God. We're just as good at that as non-Christians are. We might know Jesus, we might love him, but we somehow still find a way to ignore some of the things that he says. And when we don't follow God's design, there's usually a consequence for that. In Ecclesiastes 3.1, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, wrote this observation. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And Solomon continues in Ecclesiastes 3 to give example after example if you want to check it out this week. But what Solomon is observing is one of the great truths of life. And the great truth is that God has not simply made all things, but God has designed all things. And there is a difference. You can pick up a can of paint and throw it on a wall, and you've made something, but you haven't designed anything. What Solomon is revealing in Ecclesiastes 3.1 is that God didn't just say, let there be stuff, and let that stuff figure out how to do stuff. 
stuff. But God had a design and a purpose and a plan and intentionality behind everything that he created. There's a way that everything is designed to work, from agriculture to relationships to rest to work to money to everything. There's a design for everything in God's creation. It means everything was created with purpose. And when we, when we read through the Old Testament, we see this again and again and again. You get into books like Leviticus, which is probably a book you got into and never finished if you've ever read Leviticus. And it's just full of God's instructions. Do this this way, this this way, this this way. But one of the overriding messages that God is trying to give us is that I have designed a way for you to do everything that works. I'm the inventor of everything and I know how it's supposed to work. That's the point God is trying to make. And this is your second fill in on your outline. The conclusion of all this is that things will always work best when we follow God's design. They'll always work best when we follow God's design. I always give the example that even when someone's not a Christian and they follow God's design in an area of life, they will find that it just works better. I read a lot of business books and one of the funniest things about some of the most popular business books is that someone will stumble upon a principle that is rooted in God's design and they'll think they've discovered something genuinely amazing and they'll write a book about it. Everyone will say, how amazing. One of the big trends in business books over the last five to six years has been this concept. Someone had this revelation that there's really something to this thing called servant leadership. That if the leader views himself as a person whose job it is to serve the people under him, things work really well. If you're a Christian, you'll know, yeah, yeah, it, it, it does work. Jesus did that 2,000 years ago, but, but I think it's great you figured it out too. So there are these principles that God has put in place and they actually work most of the time whether you're a believer or not because that's just how they were designed to work. God created man, God created woman, God created kids, God created the earth on which we live and God created the union of marriage. It was his idea, he, he designed it all. And so the wisest thing we can do is seek to better understand the design of the inventor of marriage and relationships. That's why in Psalm 111 verse 10 it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. It's about respecting the designer enough to listen to what he says about his invention. We have a hard time with this. So, so often, I don't know if you've noticed, God is the last place we go when we need wisdom. It's the last place we go when we need help. Instead, we do things like, sweetheart, uh, our marriage is on the rocks, but I'm, I'm a humble man, and I'm humble enough to admit that we need to do something serious about this. Let's watch Dr. Phil together. Let's do it. <laughs> Always say, uh, you know, let's, let's watch Oprah together. Well, isn't she technically not married? Well, it's complicated, but I'm sure she has some really good things to say. So let's all sit down and, and glean from her wisdom. Why do, we, why do we do that? I mean, we, we will read entire books on a subject before we will pray for five minutes about that subject. I mean, I really need help. I guess I'll devote five hours to reading this book instead of five minutes in prayer. Well, why is that our first response? And I think the reason for that is that God's word is literally 
the last place Satan wants you looking for help. It is literally the last place Satan wants you looking for help. Taking your needs to the Lord and asking him to intervene in your life is the last thing Satan wants you to do. He will give you a million options if they'll keep you away from God's presence in prayer and seeking God's wisdom through his word. It's just the truth. So this is the first point about how to build a good marriage. You need to agree that God's design is the standard for your marriage and that God is the authority over your marriage. We have an an epidemic of, of relativity in our society and what I mean by relativity is this idea that truth is relative, that you have your truth and it's true for you but it may not be true for me. We all know that science is supposed to be rooted in the concept of absolute truth. Science is supposed to be about the pursuit of fact, the establishment of fact, and the accumulation of fact. That's the whole point behind science. Science understands that while you're free to say, I'm sure the earth is flat, while you're free to do that, it does not change the absolute truth that the earth is not flat, it's, it's round. You're welcome to believe that, but it does not change the fact that the earth is round. And so the same is true when it comes to God's design. You're free to reject it. You're free to disagree with it. But the truth will remain that God has designed it to work in a specific way. And you'll only be fooling yourself if you fight that. You'll only be denying the ultimate true reality of the situation. You don't want to be relative when it comes to your view on marriage. And and I really bring this up because God's design for marriage is increasingly in conflict with our culture and with our society. Increasingly. It's it's out of step, it's out of date, it's overcommitted. But that's because God's word is eternal. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is the same. And the truth stands no matter where society goes or where culture goes. And so I want to challenge you to root your relationships in absolute truth. And that is that things will always work best when we follow God's design, when God is the authority in a relationship. So what does God say about marriage? What, what is God's design? Why am I prefacing this with such a long disclaimer? It's 11 verses long, and that, that's all. It's incredibly simple, but it's incredibly, incredibly difficult. Simple doesn't mean easy. It just means simple. Let's all open our Bibles together to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Ephesians chapter five, verse 22. And if you own a Bible, you better be drawing like a box around this with arrows pointing at it, lights flashing around it, because this is it. This is it. Ephesians five, verse 22. God's plan. Husbands, don't make yourselves look stupid by going, yeah, when I read anything, okay? Because it's gonna come back around, so, so don't do that. You'll get yourself in trouble. That's a freebie for you. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, 
not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you, in particular, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So to summarize, husbands, love your wives. Your role model, your example of what that looks like is Jesus Christ and the way he loved and continues to love the church. He's your role model. Wives, respect your husbands. God wants them to lead your family. Let them lead. It's not a coincidence that that one of the most practical, helpful, and best-selling books on marriage of all time is simply titled Love and Respect because that's what everything comes down to. Women want to be loved and men want to be respected. I don't know if you've ever done a DISC personality test or anything like that, but it always blows my mind that there are these personality tests that can divide the entire population of Earth into one of four categories. And then it's even more mind-blowing when it's right. I don't even understand it. It's incredibly accurate. So how much more possible is it that God, the creator, can divide men and women into two categories and say, this is what you're really after, this is what you're really after. When you think about it, it's really not as unrealistic as you might first think. We have a lot more in common than we realize. So let's look at what God requires from a husband first. Paul tells us that we're to love our wives the same way that Jesus loved the church. So what did Jesus do for the church? He gave his own life for her. Jesus laid down his life for his church. That's what Jesus did. This is on your outlines. Husbands are called to lay down their own lives for their wives. If you think your spouse is sometimes hard to love, remember this. Loving the church, loving you, literally killed Jesus. That's how hard it was to love you. It literally killed him. And he rose from the dead again, but with that one fact in mind, I don't know, husbands, that we're really allowed to say she's really hard to love, ever, pretty much. I think that kind of takes care of that. A few months ago, we spoke about Jesus wrestling in prayer the same night that the angry mob was going to come arrest him and ultimately take him away to be crucified. Jesus isn't looking forward to dying on the cross. There's nothing appealing about it. And he cries out to his heavenly father, if there be any other way, please make it so. If there's any other way to do this. But there was no other way. And the father, I would imagine, said to Jesus again, we both know this is what it costs to love them. This is what it costs to love them. And Jesus' response was, not my will, but yours be done. Yours be done. Men, we are, we are stubborn and we are proud, but when, when God is the authority in your marriage, 
the Holy Spirit shows up in those moments and says, this is what it costs to love her. And we're only to have one response. Not my will, but yours be done. That's why it matters that God be the authority in your marriage. If we're left to our own devices, we'll stay emotionally distant for weeks. We'll go with the silent treatment, which always works out really well. You know, it's a very effective technique. Um, you know, and it lasts until, you know, you get a backache from sleeping on the sofa, probably. But we're just stubborn. We are so stubborn. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. That's why we need God as the authority in our own lives. That he can show up and have permission to say to us, you need to go fix this. And we submit to that because God is the authority. We're not the authority in our marriage. This is on your outlines too. Husbands are called to reveal Jesus Christ to their wives through their love. We're called to reveal Jesus to our wives. Here's a, here's, here's a common but accurate generalization about men and women. Men's primary struggle is the issue of lust. Woman's primary struggle is rooted in the issue of self-image. The men's issue is kind of self-explanatory. But to demonstrate the woman's issue, just think about the difference between a man walking past a mirror and a woman walking past a mirror. Imagine you're in Ikea. And it usually goes something like this. The guy walks past and he slows down. It doesn't matter how big the belly is. doesn't matter how, big, how bald the head is. The guy stops. Yeah, still got it. And it walks on. doesn't matter. We have, we, have this, we have this delusional level of self-confidence as guys. We just do, you know. A woman walks past the mirror half the time and it's like, oh, I'm so ugly. Uh-huh. Oh, take it away. Take it away. There's just this, this major difference. And so women generally have this issue rooted in self-image. And our whole society is built around selling products to women by going after that issue, right? That's what every commercial go, uses to go after women is. You're not pretty enough. You're not skinny enough. You're not this. You're not this. Fortunately, we have the solution for you, and it's this product. That's pretty much all of marketing to women encased in, in, in one explanation right there. So there's this issue that women have with self-image. But God did something radical for us on the cross. You know, Scripture says that he loved us before we even knew him. He loved us before we even knew him. When we were dead in our sins, he loved us. Long before we were ever beautiful, before he ever made us beautiful. And Jesus, through his work on the cross, made us beautiful to him. He made us acceptable. He made us clean. He covered over our flaws. He covered over our faults with his grace and his work on the cross. And yet as husbands, we can be so quick to become experts at picking our wives apart, going after all the little flaws, instead of taking Christ as our model. And Christ would say, you make her beautiful by the way you love her. That's what you do. That's your job, to make her feel beautiful all the time. Seriously, Jesus, have you seen her like when she first wakes up? Yes, even then, even then. Not just post-makeup wifey, but 24-7 wifey. That's what we're called to do as men. Because if they don't feel accepted by us, how much harder is it gonna be for them to believe that God accepts them? I mean, if we won't accept them with bad breath waking up in our underwear on Sunday morning and say, you're not good enough for me. I mean, how are they, how are they gonna believe that the almighty perfect God accepts them? 
So as husbands, we have to help them understand the love that Jesus has for them by the way that we love our wives, by our example. Jesus built a relationship with us through his blood that covers over all our faults. We're called to do that with our wives. We're called to cover over their faults rather than put them on full display. Let's talk about God's command to wives, God's mandate for women in a relationship. The, the kingdom of God is a monarchy. I don't know if you know this, but, but Jesus is the king of kings. He's not an elected official. Democracy wasn't actually God's idea. He's kind of more into the monarchy thing. He is the king. And in every tier of life, every facet of life, God creates order because he's a God of order in structures of leadership. He gives plans to the church and he gives plans to family. He gives plans to government. And God's plan for the family, his design, is that the husband would be the head of the family. They're the leader and they're the minister of their home. The issue here is not one of importance. The issue here is one of role. Not an issue of importance in the family, but an issue of role in the family. Paul also tells us in Ephesians that the church is like a body, that every part is vitally important. Even though some look more important than others, they're all equally important. The demonstration of this would be that I might look more important being up here teaching than the person who's holding a baby right now in the nursery. But the truth is we're both equally important. We're both needed to make this thing called church work. We just have different roles. And so God's description of the family is the same, that we have different roles that work in concert with each other to create a complete family. That's God's plan and that's God's design. It's not a scale of importance. So Paul says to the wives, let him lead. And the first response is usually, well, what if he's wrong? What if he's wrong? There's a reason that Paul goes back to that. Well, he doesn't go back to that. There's a reason for that because Paul would say it all goes back to roles. What's the role that you've been called to in this relationship by the Lord? Your husband answers to God for the leadership of your family. He does. He's been called to that role. He answers for that role. You've been called to a different role. You've been called to a different role. And you will answer for your fulfillment of that role. It's not an issue of importance. It's an issue of role. And that's what Paul is describing here. Both parts make it work. But wives, you have so much power. I saw a friend of mine put it on his Facebook account perfectly. He said it like this. He said, I wear the pants in this marriage, but she picks them out. I was like, that's pretty much a perfect description of it. I wear the pants. You're not wearing those pants. Okay. So that's kind of how it works together in marriage. It's pretty much a perfect description. But woman, I want you to know the power you have over your husband is to make him feel like a giant or feel like an infant. You can make him feel like Superman or you can make him feel like a complete loser. That's the power that's in your hands. And he will rise or fall to whichever one you treat him like. I mean, as guys, we don't even want to tell you that that's true. That's why your husband isn't saying that's true. But it's true. It's completely true. You have all that ability to either elevate your husband in that position of leadership or constantly try and bring him down. So choose carefully. In his wisdom, God has created a system for marriage in his design that requires both parties 
to lay down their own preferences for the sake of the other. It's brilliant. This is on your outline. God has created a system for marriage that requires both parties to lay down their own preferences for the sake of the other, mutual submission in order to make this work. The wife has to give up leadership to the husband, but here's the beauty of it. If the husband is loving the wife the way that Christ loves the church, she'll gladly do it. She'll gladly do it. Jesus laid down his life for you. If I told any woman in the world, I said, there's a guy who will love you like that. Will you let him lead your family? You'd be crazy to say no. You'd be crazy to say no. That's how it works. That's how it works. Both people get what they want out of it. If you're doing it right, you won't play the I'm the leader card very often, men. It's not a card to play on movie night. I think I've played it twice in 10 years of marriage. And it might be too much. But it's not a card you pull out all the time. I'm the man, I got a verse. It's not how it works. You still wanna do it that way. It's not gonna work out in the long run at all, you know? Because I just simply can't imagine Jesus ever doing that. I'm Jesus, that's why. Jesus didn't really do that. He was gentle in spirit. And here's what's interesting. Being loved is what makes a woman feel like a woman. And being respected is what makes a man feel like a man. That's the truth. Psychologists from the secular world even say that the whole root symptom behind young men being in gangs is the issue of respect. A lot of them grew up without any father figure in their life, and they didn't get the respect from their mom as a single mom because she was filling both roles that made them feel like a man. And so they'd go out shoot people and get in trouble in some pathetic effort to feel respected because respect is what makes a man feel like a man and it gets pretty ugly pretty quick when he has to try and get it when it isn't given and love is what makes a woman feel like a woman it's just the truth everybody say amen that stuff is true so men We've got to lead. Here's the deal. We're we're called to be leaders of the home. We're called to be pastors in our own home. The husband's position of leadership has a lot more to do with responsibility than it does with power. Has a lot more to do with responsibility than power. What's the spiritual climate of your family, husbands? Lead. Is your family going to be at church next Sunday? Lead. Is your family gonna prioritize sports for your kids over their relationship with God? Lead, lead. Is your marriage in a stalemate? Lead. That's what it means to be the leader in a home. That's on us. When you realize that you are responsible to God for the spiritual condition and the emotional condition of your family, that's on you. That's your responsibility. Sometimes this means listening to your wife. Because God speaks through her. He does. And if God is the authority in your marriage, you'll be more concerned about being right before him than you will about being right in the argument. You'll care more about what's right than you will about who's right when God is the authority. One of the most practical revelations someone ever gave me on this spiritual mandate is that it all comes down to how each person feels. All comes down to how each person feels. 
Women love talking about feelings, so all the women are like, yes, this is going where I want to go. But here's what I mean. It's not about does the husband think he's loving his wife. It's about does the wife feel loved by her husband. It's not about does the wife think she's respecting her husband. It's about does the husband feel respected by his wife. I can't tell you how many marriage counseling sessions involve the wife saying, I don't feel loved, I don't feel loved. She's crying and the husband says, I do love you, I do this, 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 I do this. The issue isn't that he doesn't love her. The issue is that she doesn't feel loved. And that has to do with the fact that the husband's never been concerned with the question of what makes her feel loved. What makes her feel loved? This gets into things like love languages. I highly recommend the book, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. And the whole premise of this is that not everybody feels loved by the same things. And if you're a husband, it's your job to figure out what makes your wife feel loved. If you're a woman, it's your job to figure out what makes your husband feel respected in the relationship. You might need to sit down with your spouse and ask that question. Do you feel loved? Do you feel respected? And if you're terrified to ask that question, it's an indicator that you really need to ask that question. And you need to listen to what they have to say. This is a major breakthrough in, in my marriage when we had this revelation that it's not just you choose how they want to feel loved, you do it, and then they have to take it or leave it. The goal is to make them feel loved. The goal is to make them feel respected. That's the point. That's what we're going for. How many marriages reach a deadlock, an impasse, sometimes over years, over this issue? Everybody thinks they're unique, but it all comes down to this, right? Husband is not being loving towards the wife because he doesn't feel respected. Wife is not being respectful towards the husband because she doesn't feel loved. Classic marriage stalemate. Happens again and again, been going on for thousands of years. So what do you do, what, what do, you do when that happens? What do you do? I have searched scripture like a scholar to try and find some basis for my wife having to be the one who goes first. I mean, I pursued it diligently, but I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find anything. You know what I found is I found a Jesus who loved me while I was dead in my sins. I found a Jesus who loved me before I was even born, who loved me first. And what I found is a scriptural model that says, husbands, if you're the leader, you go first just like Jesus went first to the cross to make a way for you and I to know him. He's the model, he's the example. We go first. We have to break that stalemate. We have to humble ourselves. Jesus humbled himself, scripture says, even to death on a cross. So as men, we have to humble ourselves and remember that whatever we're doing, it's not even close to what Jesus did in humbling himself on our behalf. 
That's how you break the great impasse. Here's the great thing. The great thing is that Jesus has given us a silver bullet for breaking marriage deadlocks. He's given us a silver bullet for marriage issues. He's given us a silver bullet for bitterness and unforgiveness, strife. The silver bullet for all those things is grace. It's grace. It all comes down to grace. Jesus demands that we show grace to one another. He demands that we forgive one another. And the truth is he's the only one who has the right to demand that because he's already given it to us at the expense of his own life on the cross. Jesus has every right to demand that. But we couldn't even come close to displaying that kind of grace to another person. More than that, you can't display the grace of Jesus to another person if you haven't experienced it. So let me tell you one more time what Jesus did for you. He created you, he created me. He gave us a design, a plan, he built us for a relationship with him. The perfect God. The Bible tells us that every single one of us in our own way have rejected God. Anytime we've chosen our will over his, that's sin. The Bible calls that sin. And we choose our way over his all the time. All the time. We've all done it. We all do it on a daily basis. We all sinned before we got here this morning. We just did. We've all sinned, and this sin creates a barrier with God. Let me put it this way. In our, in our society, we have, as a group of people, agreed that certain behaviors are unacceptable, and we call these behaviors crimes, and we punish them in different ways. Now, what defines a crime is basically rooted out of our collective opinion of what is good and what is bad. So even as flawed, messed up people who are imperfect, we have an idea of what's good and what's bad. And it's relative to our own moral system. So now imagine God who's perfect. What's the moral system for him? It's perfection. That's his standard. And just like we're justified in having a standard of behavior in our society that's related to our collective moral opinion, God is justified in having a standard of behavior based on his moral opinion. He's just as justified as we are. And just as when someone commits a horrible crime, something in us insists upon justice. God insists upon justice. He has to have it. We only have that desire because we're made in the image of God. He has to have justice, just like we do. So God has to have justice for this endless list of crimes that we've committed which is worse than any felony. It's the rejection of God. We've rejected him. And what's the penalty for that? It's death, eternal separation from God. And here's where grace comes into the story and everything gets flat out crazy. Justice was served, but the father poured it out on his son Jesus instead of us. And Jesus agreed to let it be done to him. Everything that happened to Jesus on the cross is a visual representation of what should have been happening to us. It should have been us. 
according to God's standard, but it happened to Jesus. And that's what grace is. And Jesus says, I've, I've taken care of it. I've made you beautiful. All your sins, past, present, and future, they're handled. They're handled. They've been paid for. They've been prosecuted. Justice has been done. It just wasn't done to you. It wasn't done to me. It was done to Jesus. That's what grace is. Grace is getting something that you do not deserve. And what Jesus offers us, we do not deserve. But he did it anyway. And if you've never experienced that kind of grace, if you've never experienced that kind of grace, you can't offer it to anybody else. You just can't. If you haven't experienced that kind of grace in a long time, I know that your marriage isn't full of grace either. You need to experience the grace of Jesus on a daily basis until you get to the point where it overwhelms you. It's amazing and it sinks in what he's really done for you. 